Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. I hope that you'll check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com and that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and to share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with Corey DeAngelis. He is a senior fellow at the uh, American Federation for Children, which is a school choice group. Uh, that has been fighting across the country for uh, allowing uh, not just vouchers, but other forms of school choice for children in multiple states. He's had enormous success in changing laws across the country via state legislatures uh, that has really resulted in a a school choice movement, uh, a revolution, if you will, uh, that is challenging the current existing education establishment uh, and all of the teachers unions across the country are quite mad about it. You can follow him on Twitter at DeAngelis Corey. He is uh, someone who has been at the forefront of this fight. And I asked him about a number of the different aspects going into this and also the limitations of what can be achieved via school choice. Corey DeAngelis, coming up next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Corey, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. So I I wanted to ask you about a bunch of different things that are going on. But first off, I want to just sort of congratulate you because... It seems that you have been able to force a lot of different legislatures across the country to grapple with the school choice issue in ways that they have never been able to uh, really do before. Why is that? What is the reason that you've been able to uh, have success with this momentum post-pandemic versus uh, all the different movements that have come before that have argued for school choice, but not had that kind of legislative reaction. Well, Ben, you're giving me too much credit. We really need to give the real credit to Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions for overplaying their hand <laughs> and awakening a sleeping giant, parents who just want more of a say in their kids' education. Uh, look, families who thought that their kids were in great public schools, maybe because they were A-rated by the state, maybe their kids had good scores on their math and reading test scores, started to see another Uh, dimension of school quality that's arguably more important, which is whether the school's curriculum aligns with their values. Uh, But as far as things that I've done, look, I've I've changed the language. I think language is really important when it comes to policy debates. And instead of saying school choice, I've really reframed it in terms of funding students as opposed to systems. Funding students, not systems. That puts the other side on defense right away. If you want to argue with me, you're, you're all of a sudden in this weird predicament where you're trying to argue to fund the system or the buildings and not the students. It really shows where 
their priorities lie. And it allows me to talk about analogies in terms of things like food stamps where we fund people directly and families can take that money to any private provider that works for them. Same thing with higher education Pell Grants, same thing with pre-K programs. The money follows the decision of the family and the left supports all these things. When, you, when it comes to every other industry and every other level of education, but only when it comes to K-12 education do they get all up in arms about it, and it's all because uh, of the influence of the teachers' unions and, and special interest politics. But things have really changed because for far too long in K-12 education, the only special interest represented the employees, the adults in the system, but now the kids have a union of their own, thankfully, and they're called parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what Randy Weingarten has been engaged in over the last several months, essentially trying to uh, sell America a revisionist version of history uh, about what the teachers unions were doing during the pandemic. I mean, it's nonstop gaslighting from Randy Weingarten. Most recently, she testified before Congress trying to repeat the lie that they were somehow pushing to reopen schools all the way since April of 2020. It's like, okay, if that was actually true, then why weren't the schools open? Why were your local affiliates tweeting that it was racist and sexist to reopen schools? Why were your board members from the Chicago Teachers Union vacationing in Puerto Rico in person while then saying that they were too scared to go back to work in person? I mean, it was so much nonstop hypocrisy. Nobody's falling for it. Twitter isn't even falling for it either. Randy's been changing her pinned tweet every day for yes. three days in a row now trying to say, actually, you know, the Republicans are wrong. I actually, I fought, I did my very best to reopen the schools. Well, the community notes have been slapped on her tweets three days in a row now. Thank goodness for Elon Musk and the fact checkers holding Randy Weingarten accountable. But look, her her union lobbied the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools. As we saw in the hearing, she had the direct phone number of Rochelle Lewinsky, the uh, CDC director. I mean, the CDC wasn't following the science. They were following the political science. You had Randy's union even threatening safety strikes and also calling Trump's plan to reopen schools callous, reckless, and cruel. I mean, it was... No one's falling for this BS, particularly parents who saw what happened, who had to deal with the struggles for for uh, over a year. I mean, and, mm-hmm. it, and it's largely to do with the, the influence of the unions. Why were the private schools open? Why were private businesses open? Well, it's because they didn't have the unions making it as difficult as possible uh, to, to reopen. Private businesses knew that they that their customers could vote with their feet. If we had school choice, we wouldn't have had this mess with the, with mm-hmm. the K-12 system. So uh, talk to me a little bit about the uh, pushback to the degree that there is uh, from critics that don't feel that school choice is necessarily the right answer. And I'm particularly interested because I've noticed this uh, happen online a a bit with your own uh, Twitter feed, that there are some critics who are on the right, including like Ann Coulter, asked me at the, you know, at the other uh, dinner the other day. Uh, you know, sort of why why are you so in favor of school choice? And she was sort of saying that like, oh no, this is something that's justified based on like property values and stuff like that. What are the critics on uh, on either side kind of really saying against your argument, given that, you know, it, it seems on the face to be such a justifiable point in terms of the ability of people to, 
you know, have the money follow the student, have them go into uh, the school environment where it makes the most sense, uh, you know, have them be able to make this market-based choice. Is it just I kind mean, of a an influence based on, uh, you know, kind of a, a leftist uh, frame of the way that we should view schools? What else is going on here? I mean, look, the major enemies in the school choice debate are the left. I mean, you don't hear Republican politicians saying that they voted against the school choice bill because of fear-mongering arguments from the right. I mean, you hear them saying, "Oh no, I, I don't want to defund my public schools." We got to. You hear them repeating the leftist talking points. It's usually the rhinos who are voting against school choice and yeah. joining all the Democrats in doing so. But we are having a lot of victory in in, in most of the red states where we have uh, activity. I mean, in the last two years alone, we've had six states go all in with Republican trifectas on school choice. But look, the leftist argument is this: it's you know, um, this will defund our public schools. And that just really goes to show you where their priorities lie. They they are focused on the institutions as opposed to the students. My main response is the money doesn't belong to the government schools. The money doesn't belong to the private schools either, to be clear. The money is meant for educating the child, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether it's public or private. We should fund the student, not the system. And so that, I mean, it... And we've seen this. We've seen the leftists argue that we got to keep secrets from parents, that parents aren't smart enough to choose their school. It's a total socialist uh, argument that that the kids belong to these government institutions. They have it completely backwards. But the main argument you'll hear from the right is a fear mongering argument where they'll say that, you know, this will lead to government intrusion or, or yes. maybe this is not the right policy. Well, first of the, all, they the, don't the, provide with the with the money comes increased government observation or something yep. like that over Christian it's, schools it, and private schools and the like. We've had private school choice for about th over three decades now in the country. The burden of proof should be on them making these fear mongering claims to show me where this has happened. Show mm -hmm. me where a private school choice program has ever forced you to take the funding. It hasn't. And that's not going to happen today. If, it, if a bill was introduced to do so, I would fight against it if it forced you to, to take the money. But look, this is the textbook definition of making perfect the enemy of the good. And we, what we have now is far from perfect. Nine out of 10 kids are stuck in government schools without any exit options. Mm -hmm. And so we might as well give them the choice to accept the funding or not to take it to private alternatives. And the government can already regulate private and home education today. And they have over time. Look in 1922 in Oregon. They outlawed private education altogether. And thankfully, three years later, the Supreme Court in Pierce versus Society of Sisters struck down that bigoted law and where the majority of the court uh, famously said that the child is not the mere creature of the state. And was that because of a school choice program? No, it was because they had authoritarians in government that wanted to control other, other people's kids. You have this in New York City right now. You have uh, uh, socialists from the left coming after the yeshiva schools, the Jewish schools, because they don't get the right test scores or whatever their arguments are. They're not substantially equivalent to the public schools. Well, the, the families in the yeshivas are saying, well, we don't want to be substantially equivalent to the public schools. And is that because they have a private school choice program? No, it's because they have authoritarians in positions of power. And school choice cuts against the likelihood of government overreach into the private sector in at least three ways. One, you have fewer people in government schools being indoctrinated to like big government policies who will probably vote to regulate private and home education without, without an exit option. Two, 
School choice allows you to have more people exercising private and home education, which means a bigger tent, a broader coalition to push back against any calls for future regulations. And then three, if more people are using private and home education, the concept becomes more mainstream. It's not some icky thing that a few people are doing in the corner. So the rest of society should be less likely to call for for regulation and private of private and home education if you have school choice. And look, I mean, Randy Weingarten has repeated this fear-mongering argument. Is it because she's a small, limited government, you know, free marketeer? <laughs> no, she's a big government socialist. She just repeats this talking point yes. because she knows if it gains traction, she'll be able to keep her gravy train gl- going in blue states and in red states. So she's just repeating this argument. If you're on Randy Weingarten's side and not my side, you're probably on the wrong side. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm 100% there with you, Corey. Um, when you look at the landscape today, Education is obviously something where, you know, a lot of Republican politicians have tried to do things. You know, I view, you know, I don't know what your perspective is, but I view the no child left behind policy as being a massive failure on the part of the federal government where George W. Bush tried to be the education president and then ultimately uh, created less freedom uh, instead of more freedom in terms of of choice about your uh, child's education, and also larded on a, a bunch of different regulatory efforts that unfortunately you know led to the wrong result. Yeah, yeah. Give me your hypothetical for what the next Republican president can do on K through twelve education that would revolutionize and truly improve the level of of not just standards, but of freedom within the system as it exists. Abolish the Department of Education. I mean, that should be part of the Republican, that should be a litmus test issue for Republicans running for federal office. The, the word education is not in the Constitution, and the department just spends tons of money. They've spent over a trillion dollars since the inception of the, the department. department of, what, imagine, imagine the Department of Education as a person sitting in an office, writing down the level of money to send to each state. <laughs> and, there, and, there, and there you actually And they have. get to take a cut. I mean, they, they yeah. take the money from the states. They, they take a cut from it. You have all these people employed by this, this, this apparatus, and then they give it back to the states, and they, uh, they tie a bunch of It's a giant Ponzi scheme. Yes. It's a it's a total mess. It was it was created as a payoff to the teachers unions in the in the to to begin with. It's a, so no wonder why Randy Weingarten and Becky Pringle love the the Department of Education. But we should get rid of it. Uh, but that might take a while to get everybody on board. You need Republicans in control first of all, and then you get need to get the right Republicans in control so that they vote together on issues like this. Mm-hmm. But then also there are tweaks you can make with school choice at the federal level as well. We're already spending the money. I don't think that the department should exist. I don't think there should be any federal funding of education, but there is a small piece. There's about 8% of total funding comes from federal sources uh, for, for K-12 education. And Rand Paul had a good uh, proposal called the School Act, where you take the existing funding that's in the in the system, and then you give the families the choice to accept that funding or not. Uh, it's a smaller amount, be targeted to lower-income families, and then let them choose to take it to a private school if they want. So I'd say that is an incremental step in the right direction, especially if everyone has the choice to accept the funding, and it's not adding additional funding. It's only reallocating existing funds from government buildings to individual families. 
So uh, when it comes to the way that that uh, people who share your views talk about this issue, I think there's a lot of hesitancy because you know they're they're coming at it from the perspective of okay, I'm actually going after a major employer in my district, you know, uh, uh, you know, some uh, a place that you know has this flow of money to it. I don't want to go out there and say. Yeah, we should defund you and also please vote for me. And so the, how do you grapple with that as a politician? If you're, you know, imagine a member of Congress who's listening to this podcast right now and sort of saying, yeah, well, this is all well and good. And I generally agree with this Corey guy. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. But, you know, in my district, this is, you know, a huge employer. I don't know how to deal with it. Same thing, by the way, is true of the uh, of the healthcare side of things. You know, mm-hmm. I have I've got this huge hospital. How am I supposed to go after you know this kind of thing? So, uh, talk me through how they should approach it. I mean, you hear this argument about the miss my major employer in my district from the rural Republicans in some in some states. Yep. So, like. In Georgia, the House, uh, 16 Republicans blocked a school choice bill after it passed the Senate with all Republicans on board. In Texas, you've historically had the same problem in the House. The Senate this year already has passed 18 to 13, a nearly universal school choice bill. Now you hear some whispers from the rural Republicans. They'll say, on the one hand, the public school, it's so fantastic in my rural area, and it's the only option in my area. But then they'll turn around and they'll try to say with a straight face, that this will defund and destroy my fantastic rural public schools. And it's like, well, one, if they're so fantastic, you should have nothing to worry about. And then two, if they're the only option, you should be the last person arguing that this will defund your schools because the families will continue going to your great rural public schools, and then you should be the least worried. Mm-hmm. But my second response to that is we have a special weapon, and that's called parents. They're a new special interest that has arisen, and they're paying more attention than ever. So you don't just have to fear the superintendents and the teachers union now. You have someone more important to worry about, which is the mama bears and the papa bears who care about their kids more than anybody else. And you know what? They outnumber the teachers union employees. So you might as well take the side of parents, especially if you're a Republican. This is a GOP party platform issue. In Texas, for example, it's a top eight legislative priority this session. And it's highly popular with Republican voters in particular. They they put it on the ballot in Texas. 88% of Republican primary voters in on the ballot supported a school choice proposal, uh, Proposition 9, last March. And that was up eight, nine percentage points since they last had it on the ballot in 2018. So there's been a surge in momentum. Parents are paying attention. And particularly in Republican primary races, this has become a political winner uh, in the midterms. There wasn't really a, a red wave like a lot of people were hoping for. There wasn't a blue wave, obviously, but there was a school choice wave. Uh, 76% of the candidates supported by my organization, the American Federation for Children and our state affiliates won their races in 2022. And we didn't just play in the easy ones. We targeted 69 incumbents, the hardest thing to do in politics, and we took out 40 of them. Uh, So the message became clear, support parental rights and education or lose your job. And you don't have to take my word for it, Ben. Um, You can look at the liberal tears in the New Yorker magazine where the author lamented that education freedom candidates fare depressingly well in the midterms. Well, that's bad news for socialists who want to control other people's <laughs> kids, but it's good news for parents. It's a political winner. Look at what happened to Terry McAuliffe, who said, I don't think parents. So it's actually, you should be more afraid 
of coming out against parental rights in education than 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 supporting it because look it's popular across party lines when you ask voters and it has really become a litmus test issue for republicans well one of the big things that i feel like is is challenging about this is that you know there are a lot of republicans who i think are they're generally aligned with where you are but they don't really know how to talk about or grapple with the various complexities of the issue when it comes to their own territory and you, i mean you made mention of this but you know one of the things that i think is so encouraging is to see that there are people who are flocking to the idea of of you know having more freedom of funding students not systems you've clearly you know uh, touched a nerve with this but there are still some you know people out there who just seem to be more reticent about doing the kind of revolutionary education reform that a lot of us believe is totally necessary in order to uh, actually you know challenge the existing uh, architecture that has been government created for so long. What would you say to them in terms of the people who are just saying, you know, well, you know, I, I generally like what this guy is saying, but not quite there yet. You know, I'm, I've am i got to, you know, uh, pay attention to my own district needs or my own, you know, sort of uh, board or what have you. What do you do yeah, yeah. to get them to change their mind? Yes. Look, you ask the voters in the in their particular district of the same people who say this, that my district isn't ready. That's just a convenient excuse to side with the leftists and the teachers unions and the superintendents mm -hmm. and to come out against a party platform issue. So we we've pulled voters in specific districts where people have said this and they overwhelmingly support school choice in mm -hmm. Texas, uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation parsed out the numbers for rural and non-rural areas and found on the primary ballot that there was no difference statistically. And in fact, the University of Houston did polling on this and found that people in rural areas were more supportive of school choice, probably because there's more Republicans in rural areas. Uh, so this, this really shouldn't be an issue. Uh, you look at the nine most rural states in the country, they all have some form of private school choice, including West Virginia has full-blown private school choice. So look, I mean, there's only so much that logic can do. We can throw the facts <laughs> at these legislators over and over again, but they need to feel the pressure. And it's the same thing with Democrats. I mean, there's a lot of left-leaning arguments you can make for school choice. It's an equalizer. Look, the poorest kids are in the worst government schools. The rich people already have school choice. Joe Biden sends his kid, sent his kids to private school and went to private school himself. You have Gavin Newsom sent his kids to private school too. Why shouldn't other families have the same opportunity? Wouldn't you be for that, allowing especially poor kids to have educational options too? And then you still have Democrats vote against it because it's more about power than logic. I mean, they're controlled by the teachers unions who look, Randy Weingarten's union in 2022, 99.97% of her campaign contributions from AFT went to Democrats in 2022. So it's hard to overcome that with logic mm -hmm. alone. You have to hit them where it hurts at the ballot box. And look, so parents uh, did this to NSBA too, the National School Boards Association, when they labeled them as domestic terrorists for pushing back at school board meetings. Well, what did parents do? They pushed at the state level to get the states to pull out of the NSBA. NSBA has had over a majority of the states have left uh, in the first six months since they made that statement. Um, so look, that, that got them to change and kind of rethink things. And this has gotten politicians to kind of scratch their head a little bit too. In the midterms, Josh Shapiro, a, a Democrat 
who was up in the polls by a lot in Pennsylvania and who actually ended up winning, he um, he's changed his education platform to include education savings accounts right before the election. Was that because he had a true change of heart? Probably not. It was because his opponent, Doug Mastriano, started calling him a school choice hypocrite for sending all his kids to private school and for attending private school himself. And then this allowed... It was a smart political move by Shapiro. It was allowed it allowed him to dodge any accusations of school choice hypocrisy. And he was also able to appeal to voters. And in Pennsylvania, they already had a couple of tax credit scholarship programs. He didn't want to alienate the thousands of families using those programs already. So he took a middle of the road approach and said, I'll support it for kids in failing schools. Mastriano's kind of the the full blown supporter of school choice, but he was able to thread the needle a little bit. And um, he, even even some Democrats, is the point, are seeing that coming out against school choice is a political disaster. And we saw how the the opposition to parental rights worked out for Terry McAuliffe. Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia in a state that went 10 points to Biden just the year before by, by six points with education voters, which was the number two issue in the election, uh, according to Washington Post exit polling. So I think the path towards bipartisanship is through hyperpartisanship in the short run. The more that the GOP wins on parental rights in the short run, the more that Democrats will defect on the issue in the long run, and we should come to more bipartisanship in the future, hopefully. So, Corey, let's go out on this. I, I really am optimistic about this issue when it comes to the developments that we've seen over the past several months. You know, uh, largely credit to you and to others like you who uh, share your opinion about the need for school choice. But my concern is this. We as a nation are falling behind a lot of the different measures that we'd like to see when it comes to the development of young children in educational matters. And that's something that isn't necessarily going to be addressed by the solution that you're offering, meaning that school choice can improve the choices that are there for parents. But as an educational system, America seems to be falling behind the rest of the world. We're not, you know, requiring the same levels of, uh, you know, achievement in many ways. And it seems like a lot of lower standards are being injected through you know, the requirements that are being put out there by colleges and the like. How can we have a higher standard of of, uh, educational achievement injected through this process? Because I I certainly, you know, I want to see that. I hope that school choice helps deliver that. But it's also something that is a, you know, just in terms of a national concern, something that I'm not sure is being addressed in the way that it needs to be. Yeah, so I think there should be a multi-pronged approach. Look, school choice, I think, is the best solution, but it isn't the only solution. We should still introduce tweaks to the system. One thing could be merit pay. Pay the better performing teachers uh, a higher salary so that you can incentivize uh, performance. So that's one thing you could do. Uh, But you could also uh, have conservatives push for school board. I mean, I don't think uh, conservatives should just ditch the public school system altogether. I think they should push to have their values injected into the system as well. And part of that could be focusing more on education as opposed to indoctrination. The, The problem is the left has infiltrated the government school system 
for far too long, for decades, and conservatives have finally figured out, well, maybe we should participate in this process too. So I think we should do that. But also, at the same time, there's an organic market response from school choice for the public schools to do a better job too. I think this is the best way to incentivize improvements in performance because, look, we can win the school board races and get our people in charge, but if you still have all the same employees in the system and you don't have that market-based accountability, you can still have the same failing results in that same system, even if you have different people in charge, your people in charge. So it could help, but I don't think it's the best. I think the better solution is have the money follow the child, and even if it's not our direct um, goal of having the money follow the child. One of the uh, res- consequences of that, one of the benefits is that the public schools up their game in response to competition. We have tons of evidence on this. There's 29 studies on the subject. 26 of the 29 studies find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes in public schools. So school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. And the latest peer-reviewed meta-analysis on the topic finds the same thing. A 2019 study published in Educational Policy. They pooled all the effect sizes together and found, lo and behold, that when there's competition from school choice, the public schools get better as well. We saw this during the pandemic period, too. There's a study by Leslie Finger and Michael Hartney uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal finding that in places that had more low-cost Catholic schools in the area, the public schools were more likely to open their doors for business while mm. a bunch of the other ones were. Why? Because families had a a more feasible exit option in those areas. This was after controlling for demographics in the area, po- political persuasions in the area, incomes in the area. And so uh, competition could lead to better test scores, but also it can lead to better um, focus on on just fo- focusing on education as opposed to politically divisive topics, which will upset your your customers. Why would you why would you want to alienate half your customer base if you are in a true competitive market? Corey, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thank you so much, Ben. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I just wanted to share with you a, a little bit of perspective on what's going on right now in terms of the presidential race. It definitely seems like, given the uh, you know launch of the Biden re-election campaign, that this is going to be a foregone conclusion in terms of the likeliest results of the Republican primary leading to the renomination of Donald Trump and, of course, the likeliest results of the Democratic primary leading to the renomination of Joe Biden. But can I suggest to you that in if this was actually a process that reflected the interests of the American people and their own priorities, neither of these candidates would be the nominee of their own respective parties. We would have nominees that were more in line with what Americans actually want from their government. What does that look like? I mean, it probably doesn't look like RFK Jr. It probably doesn't look like Ron DeSantis necessarily. It probably looks like other people in terms of uh, who we would put forward. But this, to me, is a an indictment of the way that we have approached nominations and the party systems over the past several decades. You know, you look, you can draw a through line from uh, Ross Perot's uh, surprise success in the nineties to uh, the Trump phenomenon. 
you know, the, there is a populism in America that is much more open to engaging in revolutionary ideas, ideas that would disrupt the system than what is typically nominated by each respective party. And so I, I'm not, you know, uh, necessarily saying that you know, that wouldn't result in the kind of nominees that we've seen in the past. But I do think that if you work your way through the process, you can understand why there are various candidates who never really take off, uh, but who actually espouse views that are more in com- that have more in common with what American priorities look like in various polling uh, than those that we are we are likely to end up with. If we do end up with another Trump-Biden contest, I think it will be incredibly disappointing to the vast majority of Americans. It will not be something that actually reflects their values. It will be people who are holding on, given their name ID, given their uh, resources, given all of the different uh, people that they can turn to in order to make that reality happen, as opposed to what Americans actually want. And from my perspective, that's something that we should be very concerned about. If we want to maintain a republic that actually responds to the demands of the people, then we will not have the type of nomination fights that are a foregone conclusion. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast, brought to you by Fox News. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com.